0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Rez Church podcast. Rez Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Well, let's get started. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Last week was our Vacation Bible School Sunday, and that was amazing. Great job to Andrea and all of our volunteers. That uh, just, It was a fantastic day. In the water park Sunday night, three people were baptized. Can we just give the Lord thanks for that? It such a good night. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 32. Nehemiah 9, verse 32. We're kind of jumping into the middle of a particular event in this story, uh, and I'll give you the context after we read. Verse 32, the priest Ezra is praying, and so he comes to the climax of his prayer and says, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let all, not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So here's the context. Uh, You might remember a couple of weeks ago from Nehemiah chapter 8. The wall is complete. Uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, has been lying in ruins for about 150 years, primarily because of Israel's sin against God. God allowed calamity to come upon the people of Israel. And so the city was lying in ruins, but God uses this guy named Nehemiah, who's really kind of a nobody, to rally the people of Israel together and rebuild the wall. And so they finish that, and in chapter 8, they gather together some 40,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, and they ask Ezra, the priest, to read from the book of the law, the law of Moses. You think of the first five books of your Bible, okay? That's what they were reading from, and as they read, as Ezra reads, the people start to weep and mourn. The reason they weep and mourn is because what became clear as they read from the law was how much law they had broke. You with me? Don't despise the law. Okay, now I'm talking to us now. Don't despise or dismiss the law of God because in it, the holiness and righteousness of God is revealed. The beauty of of God, the law not only tells us how life with God works, it reveals His beauty and worth and His righteousness, right? And and but here's the problem with that is that when the righteousness of God is revealed, our unrighteousness is exposed, when the holiness of God is revealed, our unholiness is exposed, and that's why the people started to weep. Can, can, let, me, let me just insert this little parenthesis right here. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is not the marital issues we're going through right now, the financial issues, the f- health issues that we're going through right now, what's going on in our country right now. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is God. You're afraid to amen right there, and I understand why, but let me explain what I mean by that. Our biggest problem is God. Why? Because God is holy. And we're not on our own. That's our biggest problem. The issue between us and God has to be resolved. Otherwise, the only end for us is death, right? So when the law of God was read, the people started to weep and mourn. But then Ezra and the priests and the Levites, they said to the people, don't cry, don't weep, because God has been merciful to you. God has been gracious to you. So instead of weeping, celebrate. And that's exactly what they did at the end of chapter 8. They, they, they celebrated the, what's called the Feast of Booths for about seven days. And then they entered into this season of worship and fasting that lasted almost three weeks. About 24 days, Right? And at the end of that season of fasting and worship, Ezra begins to pray, and his prayer comes to this climactic moment where he says, okay, God, now we're going to make a covenant reaffirmation. We, your unfaithful people, we're going to make a covenant reaffirmation. And they actually got out a document, they signed it all, and they recommitted themselves to God and to his Ways, okay. So here's what I want to do. I want to quickly go through Ezra's prayer. We're just gonna—I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to kind of hit some highlights and summarize. And then we're going to talk about what that covenant reaffirmation means. And then what in the world does that have to do with us? Okay. Sound good? So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can back up to to verse six of chapter nine. Here's where Ezra starts his prayer. He starts with creation. And he goes through and he recounts the power and the grace of God against the backdrop of Israel's sin and rebellion all the way up to his present day. Here's where he starts in verse 6. He says, God, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. Verse 7 and 8, you chose Abraham, made a covenant with him and his descendants to give them the promised land. You heard the cry of our fathers in Egypt. You remember that story where they were enslaved in Egypt and you delivered them with signs and wonders and made a name for yourself. That's verses 9 and 10. Verse 12, you guided them with pillars of fire and cloud. You might remember that. He guided them through the wilderness. Verse 13, you gave them good statutes and commandments. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock and told them to take the land. God has been good to Israel, Ezra's praying, right? But here comes the problem, verses 16 and 17. The people responded arrogantly. They rejected dependence on God. They, rejected, they, they refused to remember the miracles. And they acted presumptuously against God, and it led to a hardness of heart. And, and they, they refused to remember the miracles that God used to bring them out of slavery. So they rebelled against God. But then, verses 17 through 25, he starts to recount the mercies of God. Despite their rebellion, God was... Merciful. He was merciful. He did not forsake them for 40 years in the wilderness. And even their clothes did you know this? Their clothes for 40 years did not wear out. I do good to get clothes the last three months. I'm hard on things. Okay? 40 years their clothes didn't wear out. In addition to the manna, God's goodness to them. In verses 22 through 25, He was good and kind to them. He multiplied the nation and empowered them to overthrow four to five cities and take the promised land. But then. We, are you getting the pattern now? They rebel again. They sin again. Things kind of ramp up in their blatant disregard for God's law. They even start to kill the prophets He sends them to warn them. Ezra's just recounting all of this. They killed the prophets, but the pattern repeats and God, even though the consequences of their actions they have to bear, God is merciful. Again and again and again. So here's the point to see in Ezra's prayer the inexhaustible grace of God. Inexhaustible grace of God. And here's why that's huge it's because when God makes covenant, the basis for his covenant or his promises is always his grace, not yours and my effort. Because if it's based on yours and my effort, we're, the, the covenant's doomed to fail from the get-go. It's why I tell married couples or pre- couples that are engaged when they go through premarital counseling with me, I, I tell every one of them, I say, look, just wrap your mind around the fact that you are two imperfect people committing to live together for the rest of your lives. <laughs> that in and of itself ought to make us stop and pause and realize we are terrible at keeping covenant on our own. But Ezra recounts the grace of God, the inexhaustible grace of God. And then he comes to his climax in verse 32, and he says, Now, now what? Now that we've seen what kind of God you are, what kind of God is He? Merciful, gracious, lovingly kind, steadfast. He's great, He's mighty, He's awesome, He's covenant-keeping. Now that we see who you are, and we see who we are, we make this covenant reaffirmation on the basis of who you are. And that's what they did. And they signed the document. And they recommitted themselves to the Lord, their God, and to his ways. So what does that have to do with us? Okay. Right. What, what in the world do we take from that? Here, there, there's some things that have changed. And there's some things that have not changed. Let's talk about what has not changed. Here's what has not change number one two things one is that natural everybody I say natural natural human behavior in other words e- human efforts on their own always lead and I you guys know I'm very careful to use the word always always lead to sin and rebellion and disobedience against God on our own we fail. You might get it right, 3 out of 10, 4 out of 10, 7 out of 10, but relationship with God is not like horseshoes and hand grenades. You just got to get close. You, you with me? A holy God demands perfection. Get your mind around that. He's not sweeping things under the rug. And natural human behavior in our own strength Always leads to sin and rebellion against God. That has not changed. Here's the other thing that has not changed. We worship the same loving, kind, merciful, gracious God that Israel worshiped. Okay? We worship the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his covenant keeping nature by his inexhaustible grace is not, has not changed. So that's. What hasn't changed? Here's what has changed between us and Israel in Nehemiah's day. We have a better covenant. We have better promises. I'm going to read you scripture where I get that from in just a second. But we have a better covenant. We have a better promises. Because, listen, the covenant God made with Israel Though it provided mercy and forgiveness through the sacrificial system, it did not solve the problem of the human nature. What's our nature? What's our natural behavior? Sin and rebellion against God. That old covenant didn't solve that problem. So Hebrews chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 10. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That's different. The law is not on tablets. God's standard, His righteousness his moral, spiritual law. It's not on tablets. It's now in the new covenant for the born again believer written on our hearts and in our minds. Which means what? If, listen, if natural human behavior, life on our own efforts, always produces sin and rebellion, that must mean that the Christian life is a supernatural life with me in other words if you think Christianity is just a supplement you kind of add on this religious add-on to your life you kind of tack it on you know to the, all the other efforts that you're making or the things that you're doing that's not the Christian life the Christian life is a supernatural life why do I say that because in Christ we have been given a new nature 2 Corinthians 5.17. I want us to read it together. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't read that as if it's only talking about, it's part of it, but it's not only talking about forgiveness, that your debt's been reconciled. It's talking about a new life. A new way of living, a new kind of life that, at least part of it, is we have a new nature. Something's different about us because of Christ. You know what that means? This is going to jostle you a little bit. But it means for the born-again Christian, it is wrong for us to refer to ourselves or think of ourselves as sinful people. sinful people, as if, here's what I mean by that, as if you and I have no power to overcome sin and live the righteous life. I'm sick and tired of this in myself, it's been a part of my life in the past too, and, and I'm sick and tired of seeing Christians walk around as though, oh, I'm just a sinful person, there's nothing I can really do about it, and we're just sort of holding on to God being merciful and kind, maybe he'll sweep some stuff under the rug and let me skeet on by. That's not who God is. That's not why Christ died and rose again and why the Spirit was poured out. You, if you are in Christ, sin, listen, is now unnatural behavior. It's not natural. It's unnatural. Why? Because you have a new nature in which dwells the Spirit of God, the same Spirit, the Bible says, that raised Christ from the dead. Why do we need to know that? Because that's the kind of power that lives in the heart of the believer. You have a new nature. You're not a sinful person. So that begs the question, doesn't it? Why do I still sin then? You're right to ask that question. Why do I still sin If I have a new nature. Let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Galatians 5 verse 16. This is Paul writing and he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Everybody say Spirit, please. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Everybody say flesh, please. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're a Christian and you sin, you've probably made this statement before. I didn't want to do that. It's not my desire, it's not my heart. Yeah, in the moment you caved. But then there's that twinge in your gut. There's that just rancid smell in your soul where it's like, "That's not. And you, you almost struggle to put words to it. why? Because it's not natural behavior. And if you're led by the spirit, verse 18. You're not under the law. Now, here's what we gotta understand. What's the difference between flesh and spirit? Okay? Anytime in Scripture when you see Paul talking about flesh, the works of the flesh, walking in the flesh, okay? Here's what he's talking about natural human behavior and effort. That's what he's talking about. You and me on our own, in our own strength. That's what he's talking about, in the flesh. When he talks about spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God that we understand from Scripture is the one who actually brings about the regeneration of our soul through Christ, gives us a new nature, and now indwells every believer. He's talking about staying in step with him. The Spirit's not an it. He's a him. Okay? I don't have time to unpack that. But we have a relationship with the Spirit of the living God. And Paul's saying he's contrasting the difference between walking in or with or in step with the Spirit versus walking or in step with your flesh, okay? So, the Spirit is when we are giving in, as born-again believers, leaning in and depending on the power and strength of the Holy Spirit who lives in us to live the righteous life, to live as covenant people. It's dependence on him and not on you. You with me? Okay. So, verse, oh, well, let me just say this. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That's powerful. Because here's what that means it means that you and I in Christ are free from the bondage of trying to live up to God's standards in our own strength. It doesn't mean that God's lowered his standards. It means that he's made provision of forgiveness and mercy through Christ and power through the Spirit to live the righteous life. You with me? Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, obvious. In other words, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, he's not given an exhaustive list, but you can probably find yourself in there somewhere. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, God has not lowered his standards in the new covenant. You with me? That's, so the works of the flesh, the efforts of the flesh, are obvious. That's where we end up. And God has not lowered his standards. So something else has got to happen here, verse 21. But the fruit, everybody say fruit. He changed the terms. He goes from talking about works to fruit. What's the difference between works and fruit? Works are natural efforts. Fruit is supernaturally produced. What's the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And against such things, there is no law. In other words, when I lean into, when you and I who are born again lean into the Spirit, depend on the spirit, surrender to the spirit, his strength and power, fruit is produced. And when that kind of fruit is produced, guess what? I don't need a law to tell me what not to do. And I I find that so many Christians live their, their Christian life on this playing field. I'm trying not to do these things. That's, their, that's the focus, is I'm, I'm trying not to be angry. I'm trying not to be unforgiving in my marriage. I'm trying not to be greedy with my finances. I'm trying not to look at pornography. I'm trying not to treat, cheat, cheat on my spouse. And, and can I just tell you, the new covenant, the difference between the new covenant and the old is that God didn't want us to live in this world or this life of, I'm trying not to wanted us to live a life where fruit is being produced. That instead of just trying not to do these things, I walk in self-control by the power of the Spirit. I walk in love and forgiveness when I'm wronged because of the power of the Spirit. Well, Bradley, you still have not answered the question. Why do I still sin? When we sin... When temptations come, we're really at the crossroads of depending on the spirit versus depending on the flesh. We're at that crossroads. And that crossroads is critical. It's, it's where we often find ourselves trying to find comfort and satisfaction by our own means. I really believe that every sin we commit, it is an effort in our own strength to find satisfaction, comfort, and peace. It's really true. Think about just whatever sin you've been battling or have battled or struggled with this week. And I guarantee you, you can find the root of it is you're trying to satisfy your own soul with your own efforts. Versus depending on the spirit to produce fruit. So, why do I still sin? It's a theological term. We live in the already but not yet. In other words, we have a new nature. We have the spirit of God, those of us who are born again. But our flesh is still tagging along for the ride. For now. One day that battle will be over. Amen. So our flesh is still tagging along for the ride. That's why there's still a need for the church in the new covenant to have a regular rhythm of repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is not just I'm sorry. Some people think that when we come to the Lord's table, for example, which is our covenant reaffirmation. You understand that, right? Israel made a covenant reaffirmation in ink on parchment and they recommitted themselves to the Lord and to his ways. Our covenant reaffirmation is not made with ink. It's made with blood. His righteous blood. And it's not written on parchment. It's written on our hearts and in our minds. So when we repent, we're turning from sin... And we're turning to God. That's huge. It's not just I'm sorry, because this is where a lot of Christians live. God, I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to do better. What's the problem with that statement? I'm going to try to do better. Our own flesh, our own strength. This is God. I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to you for strength and power by your spirit to live as covenant people. I'm trusting in the shed blood of Jesus and his broken body and in his death and resurrection as the sacrifice for my sins. And I'm turning to you for strength and power by your spirit to live the righteous life. Because you've given me a new nature. You've given me your spirit. You've given me your word. God has resourced us to live as his people. You with me? So coming to the Lord's table is our covenant reaffirmation. It is an opportunity for us to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God. You know, some people say, well, am, aren't I supposed to at least try? Like, like here, here's the... If you think of dependency on the Spirit as you just sort of sit back and do nothing, what what it is is that, that dependency gives rise. It gives rise to all these things that we might do and efforts we might make in His strength and power. We need covenant community. We need accountability. The Bible is clear. Flee from sexual immorality. Run. But I don't know about you, but the effort to run, I don't do that very well in my own strength. I need his spirit and his power. So we're going to come to the table today. And you might have noticed that we haven't done communion at res in quite a while. And the reason for that is that I just, it was purposeful on my part. Because I felt like we'd slipped into an unhealthy rhythm with the Lord's Supper. I felt like it had become just this tag on the end of our services. We just sort of do it, you know, once or twice a month or every so often. We take communion, we recite these few things, and we go home. And it's just, I felt like there was not nearly enough corporate thoughtfulness, prayerfulness, and intentionality with it. And so we hit pause on it. And what we want to do today is we want to come in a spirit of repentance, recognizing what that is, and turn to God, turn away from sin and turn to God, yes, for forgiveness and mercy, but also for power to live the righteous life. Because the covenants of God, the promises of God, are based on His grace, not our effort. You, you with me? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it a little bit differently. All right? We're going to do that with some liturgy. And don't let that word scare you. All right? Some people hear liturgy and they go, oh, Lord, what in the world are we doing? Think of liturgy this way. It's actually a bigger part of our rhythm than we might realize because every time we put a song on the screen with pre-written lyrics that we sing together, and our songs that we sing include prayers of repentance sometimes. They include declarations of truth. They include confessions. So we do that together, and that is a form of liturgy. So the written prayers and confessions that we're going to make today in this liturgy, it's right for all of us to think of it as just like worship, like the time of worship when we sing together. We're going to pray together. We're going to make confession together. And in so doing, there's going to be a spirit of repentance that we walk in, trusting that the Holy Spirit will do the transformative work. Yeah, you can walk through this thoughtlessly. Or you can walk through it in faith, just like when we sing. Now, when we come to the table, let me say this, too. Communion is for the believer. It is for the saved, okay? The Lord's table is for those people who have trusted Christ as Savior. So if you're here this morning and you have not said yes to Jesus, you can do one of two things. Number one, you can let the elements pass, all right? Please understand, no one in here is going to judge you or look down upon you. In fact, I would rather you take it that seriously, okay? Now, here's the other thing you can do. In the liturgy that you have, there are prayers of confession that we're going to read before we come to the table. There are prayers of repentance and acknowledgement of sin and a turning to Jesus for salvation, for grace, and for mercy. And so if you have not yet trusted Christ, here's what you can do. As the Spirit leads you, you can pray these prayers in faith. You can make these confessions in faith. You can say yes to Jesus, and you know what? You can join us at the Lord's table, and we'll celebrate with you. You can be saved today. Today. And how great is it, it's not that what's written on these papers are in and of themselves salvific, but the Spirit can use these words as you pray them in faith and do the regenerative work in your soul that comes with a new nature and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right? So we'll celebrate with you. Now, there are some things that I'm going to read, okay? And there are some things that we're going to read and declare and confess and pray together. And they're all in bold. We're going to sing throughout a couple different times. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table, okay? And so this this is a time for you to engage, for you to be a part of this service in a very special and unique way as we come to the Lord's table. And the church has been doing this for thousands of years, by the way. Okay? So this is nothing brand new. I'm going to pray as our worship team comes, and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can come to you, to your throne, to obtain mercy and find grace. And Lord, that's what we want to do today. We don't want to come flippantly or thoughtlessly We want to behold you and your beauty and your worth. We want to see your holiness and righteousness in your law. We want to reckon with the fact that we fall short. But we also want to affirm the covenant promises you have made to us. That you have given us a new nature. You have given us your spirit. And that we have mercy and grace by the blood of your son Jesus Christ. So make that clear today, and Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, lead your people in faith. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let's get started. A prayer for purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you. And worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now hear the words of our Lord Jesus when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Lord, have mercy upon us. And together, Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Would you stand as we sing? Let's give thanks for the gospel this morning. Can we do that? Amen. Now, as you remain standing, we're going to read the Nicene Creed, and this is really just a way for us to affirm and declare how God has made himself known to us. That's what we want to do. And just a little asterisk there. You might notice it even uh, towards the end. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And, and if, if you're not familiar with the Nicene Creed, I just want to let you know, ease your fears, we're not becoming Catholic, okay, by reading this. Now, that the word Catholic is a lot older than Roman Catholicism. That's not what we're saying. So don't go out of here saying, oh, Resurrection Church is going Catholic. No, the word Catholic just means universal, it means general. So what we're saying when we declare that is that we're a part of a larger whole. Resurrection Church is not the only church in the kingdom, we're a part of the body of Christ. So that's what we're saying. We're a part of the, the church of Christ that is universal, that he said he was going to build, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Amen? Amen. All right, so that's how we're going to read that. Let's start. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now I'm going to invite you as you're seated to pause for prayer. And what I want to invite you to do is pray for those that you know and love who do not know Christ. In fact, we had some people in the first service call those names out loud, and I'll trust you to use discernment about that. But let's just pause right now and pray. Call those names to the Lord. Pray for those people that salvation would come. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers. For Jesus Christ's sake our only mediator and advocate who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Now let's pray this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, if you're able, I will invite you to kneel. If you're not able physically, you can remain seated and just offer your personal prayers for forgiveness. Let's pause for that now. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who is great in mercy, has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to Him. Have mercy upon you, pardon you, and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, as our host team prepares to serve you the elements... I want you to hear from the scriptures about the forgiveness of God. 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Praise your name. As a closing prayer, the last one together, let's pray this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out into the world to do your work that you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now forever. Amen. Would you lift your hands? The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.